Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we'll talk with Laurence Bard. Laurence founded MediaTree 25 years ago, as she had seen there was a need to have a specialized agency to support companies with their investor communication in the IPO context. MediaTree has worked with a number of companies that went public over the last decades. With Laurence, we wanted to leverage her experience to discuss the topics that people don't always tell you about your IPO, ranging from how to prepare the company's IPO pitch to managing the physical stress of the roadshow process. Before we start, we'd like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer of financial services, or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording have no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Laurence, thank you very much for joining us today in person here in Paris. It's a real pleasure to be here in Paris. Beautiful day. So Absolutely. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your background and uh, what led you to found MediaTree. Sure. So I was an investment banker when I started my career in New York on Wall Street. And then I came to Europe in London, in the city, and I was working in the equity capital markets. And so I accompanied companies with their IPOs and other equity structures. And then while I was doing that, I realized there was a real need for an accompaniment of the senior managers on, I guess, the nuts and bolts of the IPO. It's, you know, when you do an IPO, you have advisors, you have bankers, lawyers, accountants, et cetera. But there's a human sort of element of the IPO process, which I found really interesting. And I decided to create MediaTree to help companies with this day-to-day implementation of the IPO. So investor marketing, coaching them ahead of the IPO to be comfortable with the exercise, and then accompanying them through initially around the world, but uh, after COVID, more and more virtually. Is there any examples of companies you've accompanied during your uh, 25 years at MediaTree? Yeah, of course. So again, I ran the business for 15 years, and today the business is run by Fallon Painter, my partner. And we, in the course of that period, of course, have encountered many, many different types of IPOs, not just in Europe, but also in Asia, in lots of different parts of the world. The names, I guess, that your listeners will probably recognize from recently are names like uh, Deezer and OVH Cloud, All Funds in Spain, uh, Nexi, Denora in Italy. Those are the few that have been done in the last couple of years. But you know, the track record spans, I guess, a lot uh, larger than that. And when you think we've worked on some major European privatizations, whether EDF, uh, NG, Aéroport de Paris, we had uh, Française des Jeux. We also have privatizations in Italy, like Poste Italiane and, uh, of course, Enel was one of our big, big clients over 25 years but also clients like Orange. And then there are some clients that are more, I guess, uh, well-known in terms of brands. So clients like Showroom Privé or Burberry. And then there are some that we worked on that didn't IPO that are like Formula One that come back a couple of times, never happened. And then names, you know, again, China, Asia, et cetera. We have done IPOs in um, Australia for Telstra, in Hong Kong for Citic, which is one of the largest retail banks. Otsuka Pharmaceuticals in Tokyo, which is one of the big pharmaceutical companies globally. So 
it really spans from quite small mid-caps to very large global deals. And at what stage do you actually get involved? How long before the IPO do companies typically engage with you to prepare? It depends. Because we are at the tail end of the execution in the sense that typically the clients will hire us when there is a go and when they know they're likely to be conducting this roadshow exercise and marketing exercise. It tends to be in the last sort of three to six months before we think the timing is going to be the right one for the company to actually go public. The reality is it uh, can depend. I worked last year with a company in Vietnam big EV manufacturer that was in the throes of IPO, but actually decided to uh, just uh, got uh, taken out by a SPAC. So they're going to IPO via SPAC. That was announced 10 days ago. So it can depend. There is an element of early look, marketing and prepping the companies also for the analyst briefing, which is ahead of the actual go, no go decision. So it can depend. It tends to be three to six months, but it can sometimes be a little bit longer. Okay, and then when the companies come to you, you actually see them and they're just beginning to get ready. So what do you think is one of the most important aspects to prepare the company early for its IPO? Is there anything you'd like to see them actually prepare before they meet you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of advice to companies around governance structure and setting up the company, cleaning up the accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess that's important and that's a lot of advice is given by the other members of the advisory team. For us, you know, there's a real sense that you should think about the finance function. The finance function is going to be really important to set up. There's going to be reporting that's going to happen very quickly after IPO and that needs to have all the information filtered up quite quickly. That's probably what takes the longest. It can take a lot of time to put that in place. What is going to be the flow? How quickly can we get that? So teeing up the finance function is really important the reporting and how we're going to do control de gestion, the controlling. The other sort of area is probably the IR. I'm sure we'll talk about this again. I've accompanied many companies where the IR wasn't completely in place, but it's wonderful when it is. And I remember, for example, even something like Veolia, where we did the IPO in the early 2000s. At the time, it was Vivendi Environnement, and we didn't have Nathalie Pinot on board yet. But when she came, it was just the week before the roadshow, and it makes a big difference. So even if you only get your IR person quite soon before you go on the road, it's important to onboard the IR function quite early. And then I would think the other sort of area for preparation is really, of course, the communications. How is that going to articulate? What is the internal comms doing versus the financial comms? Who are the people that overlap, et cetera? And also things like looking at your CEO. Does the CEO tweet? If so, what do you need to put in place to, you know, what is the guidance for tweeting, that sort of thing? And finally, I would say ESG reporting, really important to plan for. There's all the sort of CSRDs coming up and then the CSRDDD, so coming up next year. And I think people really need to be clear how they're going to report to the public markets, you know, how they source the supply chain, what are the key sort of ESG considerations that investors will want to hear about. So all these areas are not necessarily in place when companies first think about it. All these things, I think, are important. Absolutely. And on the ESG side, we, we also flagged uh, in one of the earlier episodes that uh, you actually need to start way earlier than the IPO process. It would ideally start a few years before, so you have historical data that investors can rely on when they uh, see the company come. But in preparing for this, some companies will change the management before the IPO to ensure they have a CEO or a CFO that already has public market experience. 
Is that something that's important or is that something they can actually learn on the go as they become a public company? Yeah, I think CEOs or CFOs with public uh, listed company experience are quite rare. And of course, it's a huge advantage. I'm thinking, for example, of um, Michel Januzzi, who IPO'd Tarket in 2013 and then became the CEO of Veralia and did a wonderful IPO in 2019 on Euronext with all the benefit of everything that he'd done with his first IPO into the second. I think it's really important for the CFO to be ideally having had some experience of public listed companies because really it's down to the CFO to do all the reporting. And as we know, the market, you have a financial calendar once you're public, so you will know in advance when things need to be disclosed and published and getting the organization ramped up to deliver that. And as you rightly say, that can take a couple of years even to put systems in place. So getting someone that's done it, understands the urgency, knows processes, how to do that is really interesting. We worked with a company that was looking to IPO, and sometimes you find these CFOs who are a little bit IPO addicts. So we worked with a a woman who was CFO of a company that uh, paired, IPO'd when she left, in a way, it was Elise, and then she went to Auberture, which now become Idemia, and they were looking at some point to, before the merger with Morpho, to list. And then she then became CFO of Consolis, another one that's looked for listing. So you find sometimes the same person going from CFO job to CFO job. And that tells you it's quite important. I just saw, I guess it was a report from Spencer Stewart that looked at all the IPOs in the last five years and showed that uh, really only 9% of companies that had IPO'd in the last five years had a CFO with previous IPO experience and only 36% with public company experience. So they're quite rare. Oh, they are quite rare. And of course, it helps when at least one of the two has the experience because there's an element of communication with the market, right? That uh, you learn, I guess, through hardship when you're actually a chief executive and in the driving seat of a public market company. Yeah, and you can learn. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. So the majority does learn. And I guess if you're going to learn, you know, your point about really preparing the company for the financial aspect of it, but also having the skills as a CFO to become the interface, because there is an element of very much being the person that people come to a lot. So there's also a communication side of it that's important. But you can also think about how the CFO structures their team. You can also think about, okay, maybe they haven't worked in a publicly listed company or done an IPO, but you can think about distributing that experience across different people in the team who have done it. So the point is, it's, you can absolutely prepare it. And I would say the majority will sort of fast track themselves into the role and do very well. And we talked about the IR a bit, uh, investor relations person. We see it often being a role that's hired quite late in the process. And I'm guessing it's because you don't actually know if you're going to do an IPO, right? So you don't actually know if you're going to need an IR person. But I would think that function is quite important to have ready early because your company marketing doesn't stop when you list, right? You actually have to continue delivering on investor expectations over time. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. The IR function is really important. When you think about your initial public offering, this is where you're going to meet the whole universe of investors from scratch. You don't yet know who's going to be your shareholder, but it's almost like the best possible missionary roadshow that you can do. You can really go meet the the whole universe. So to have someone there that compiles not just a database, but also builds those relationships and really sort of gets to know the particularities of the different fund managers they have in front of them, analysts they have in front of them, is super important. So it's absolutely essential if you can. What we see sometimes is somebody internal 
that will then grow into that IR function. And that's probably a good bet as well, especially if they know the company well. Again, the IR has got to have certain skills and in a way learning on the IPO, it's a good time to come on board. And usually the management of this whole IPO process actually falls on the CEO or CFO, right? Because there is an element of important decisions for the company and also the outward communication, as we said. But do you think this is the best setup? I mean, the CEO and CFO actually has to run the company as well. And usually they're high growth companies that uh, with uh, very significant ambitions. So how do you think about who should actually be running it? That's always a dilemma, right? Because in a way, when you think about the IPO, it's the high point or it's a high point of a company's life. So of course, the CEO and the CFO are involved and they largely have to make many decisions. But that's, I guess, something they don't really tell you when you're sort of embarking on this process. You're going to have to balance building and running your business and delivering the results that you're sort of estimating that's going to be the underlying of your valuation with the actual work. So in a way, the companies where I've seen it work best is when they really come together with a very tight deal team where they have, you know, regular steering committees. They're very clear who are people involved, break it down into work streams, and you get a deal captain typically. So that can be, for example, the head of strategy or M&A in a company, or it can be somebody in the finance function that is the number two to CFO. So really having somebody that's deal captain, sort of really working the work streams and then just sort of getting the CFO and CEO to focus as and when is a good way. There's no doubt that IPO will challenge most people because there's a lot of work and there's a lot of work in a very short, condensed period of time. So the key is to also manage your stamina, know what are the key milestones. You know, you'll have a sort of ramp up of preparation where you're going to be doing the due diligence, the prospectus, et cetera. Then there's going to be a natural period where you do an analyst presentation to get the syndicate banks analysts on board. And then there's going to be a period of them writing their research. So think about the whole process and where you can punctuate times where you can be more or less involved. The closer you get to the actual sort of go, the harder that is, but you just have to think that it's finite. And how do you manage your energy in the duration? is quite important to think about as well. And what would you say are some of the main challenges that uh, managers face on this road, sort of preparing for the roadshow and on the roadshow? I guess the challenge is convincing. When you think about IPO, it's about going out to people who don't know you, probably have read a piece of research and have heard from their brokers about what you do and who you are and largely what you might be worth. Your job is to go out there and convince. So there's something very important about how you communicate it, how you pitch it. So really sort of telling your equity story is going to be fundamental. There's two challenges there. There's how you position the story, and then there's how you actually deliver it. Those are two different things. So if you think about positioning the story, well, top tips like encapsulate the stories. So for example, if you think of Airbnb, they encapsulate the story with, book rooms with locals rather than hotels. Super clear. You come in, you can even look at the slide title, powerful visual subtitle. You know what the story is largely. If you think of, for example, Peloton, you know, if you had a strap line like on the most basic level, Peloton sells happiness, much less clear. So when you think about, okay, how do I encapsulate? How do I clarify? But then it's also presenting to investors what is the total addressable market. Really important to think about What is the universe that I play in? Where am I situated? How do I position myself? So a typical equity pitch will always have what I do, 
what is the total addressable market, and then, of course, the different sort of divisional or product type breakdown, so very operational part of the pitch. And again, I'm thinking of Vehalia, who I quoted earlier. When they did their IPO, they had a really clear presentation with their four pillars of their strategy. So it was around sort of getting a very disciplined growth. It was around deploying operational excellence, which of course was the CEO's real sort of strength, about investing wisely and creating an entrepreneurial culture. There was a piece around changing the culture of the company. So very clearly defined in the pitch. And then of course, there's always a big part of the story, which is the actual numbers. But it's not just the numbers, it's a dashboard of numbers because you're going to start reporting regularly on those metrics, right? So establish them at IPO and go. So I guess that's one challenge is the content. How do I encapsulate that? And by the way, all of this has to be 25 minutes, right? And you have to also be able to do it in five minutes because sometimes you're going to be in front of investors who have a prospectus, who just want to ask you questions for 55 minutes. So your pitch has to be super sharp, super clear. The other challenge, I guess, is how you do it. I've played a part in the past where I've thought about the delivery. So when you think about IPO, a lot of times you're talking about a C-suite that's not necessarily English speaking, who has to deliver messages in English to investors who are not always English speaking. So there's a sort of language side of it. But I guess the delivery has to be very clear. It has to be as much as possible with as little lingo as you can do, and it has to be really concise. You basically got to convince people in a very short meeting to buy your shares, to invest. And how do people prepare for these pitches? Because I assume you help them to prepare for it. So what's an efficient way to prepare? The pitch is a real art because largely it happens in a dialogue with investors. So largely you're pitching your equity story through Q&A and you don't know, of course, in advance what the questions are going to be. I guess the key is to have a very tight pitch. So you have 25 minutes to tell the story, 25, 30 minutes. That really you learn with repetition, rehearsal, individually, collectively, and also thinking about the language and the potential vocabulary you're going to need. And if that's an issue, it's not always an issue. And then you just practice what types of questions are going to happen. And the analysts will help you with that. And you have to basically be able to convince in a very short period of time, because the priority is to engage the dialogue and really understand what the investor needs to understand to invest. You're not going to be able to say everything in the 55 minutes that you have, but you have a really good shot at encapsulating some of the key points. And if you let them drive through the questioning, then you can answer what they need to know before they can make a decision internally. That's definitely the case for companies meeting with our team. We're very big on Q&A. We tend to not really give any time for presentation because we, we want to be able to ask the most questions we can. I've met with a lot of fund managers in my previous job. And one of the criticisms I heard fund managers was in an IPO, if they haven't been involved in the early look phase, which they often haven't, the road trip period is just too short. And you know, for many, for many fundamental investors, it's very important to have one or multiple one-on-one meetings with the top management to properly understand the strategy, to know what to expect going forward, etc. So often they feel that they might get a small group meeting and one analyst meeting, and that's it. And that's just not enough for them to commit significant amounts of capital at the IPO. How do you think investors and companies can address this challenge? You're right. I think they're targeting the investors that are likely to be 
big investors at IPO in the early looks is really important. And we are seeing, especially in markets that are slightly more, I guess, volatile, which has been this year, last year, and a little bit the year before, longer testing the water periods. So where you might have more chances to see those investors. You know, the banks have a big role to play with their research analysts in educating the universe of investors that are important for the deal to come in. So there's a sort of, you know, use the brokers as well. The brokers can help you and those analysts can come ahead of the deal to tell you a little bit about the research that they've published and the story that they're sponsoring effectively. I guess also, as you said, the marketing period of the IPO is maybe a first contact point for investors who might be some of your core investors in a year or 18 months, right? Once they've actually seen the company deliver on their guidance. Just in terms of the interaction, because a lot of the companies that come to the market do have experience with investor interaction, but on the private market side, they've uh, had VC investors or private equity investors, and now they're faced with public markets investors who might have different things in mind. How would you say those two are different in uh, the way they interact? It's true that there is so much money in the private market that you you have to think about, do I go that route or do I go the public market route? So I guess you need to know why you're doing the IPO. It's actually different. What you find in the private market is maybe large concentrated numbers of investors. So whereas the public market, you're going to have a lot more investors that have possibly smaller holdings. So it's actually quite a different exercise. And of course, in an IPO, you'll have the cornerstones. So that's important. And it's akin to sort of having one or two large private market investors. The difference is also what you need to disclose, how you approach the pitch. When you're listed on a stock exchange, you have requirements for disclosure. You have research that underpins it. There's a lot more, I guess, information that allows maybe investors to come in and out on smaller sort of tickets, if you see what I mean. And in terms of this research, one of the important points before launching the IPO is this interaction with the South Side analysts. How does a company think about that interaction versus the investor education? The bank's analysts are going to be so important in helping the company shape its story. Typically what happens is there is an analyst briefing for the syndicates and that's quite a long drawn out presentation where usually a lot of information about the company is disclosed and the analysts are also given the opportunity to really understand and go underneath the bonnet of the story. These research analysts are really important to the company because they are effectively, they're going to write the research piece. So it's really important that they understand what are the drivers of the future growth that they're able to value because they're also going to be responsible for producing a value that they think is right, which will then help shape the sort of price range of the IPO. And of course, you'll get a consensus. There's multiple research analysts. And so you work on the valuation through different perspectives. But it's quite an important public because then they really go out in the market and explain they're really important to manage and to talk to and to give time to. And is there a different process to talk to them? I mean, is it less about pitching and maybe more about explaining the gears and how the company runs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they are looking at a longer presentation, usually a half a day, sometimes a full day with a site visit. So they'll really get a chance to ask lots and lots and lots of questions because they then need to sort of really appreciate what that company might be like versus peers. So they'll have real access to management and they'll be invited to have an ongoing dialogue with the CFO. Once they've seen the sort of what I call sort of analyst presentation the day, they will have a process where they iterate back and forth questions, they'll have calls, etc. So 
There's a real process of educating the analyst. That's really important because once it's priced, once there's a price range announced and the deal is roadshowing, the analyst needs to explain in relation to everything else that's going in the market, why that value is there and what the company could deliver. So they're underpinning the work that the management is doing. So super important. And if we now move to the allocation process, once a company has drawn enough interest, it's often said that the IPO is the only time a company actually gets to choose its shareholders. But it's often not the management that has control because you could have a private equity seller who has more control or the banks will have a say as well. But then again, the management will actually have to continue to deliver to that shareholder base you know, uh, post-IPO. So how should the management think about these allocations? The allocation process is very technical. It really is the remit, as you say, the vendor, so the person that owns the shares is ultimately going to make the decision with the syndicate, with the banks. The banks really know the market and they really know the investor base. So there's a temptation to let that happen. But as you rightly say, you're going to live with it with your shareholder sort of distribution once you're public. So it's important that you know who you're talking to, that you have relationships with these investors who effectively are supporting you and accompanying you usually over the, the next few years. So really be intentional. First of all, before you even get to allocation, you'll get a daily update on the book. When you're roadshowing as a management team, you'll be on a call at night where, you know, this is how the book is built. This is who's come in. And it's actually quite brutal because when you think about it, if you go to Geneva and you see four investors, you'll know right away whether you did a good job or not. And in fact, sometimes if there's two teams, they might compete, like who's got the most order in the order book from this financial center versus that one. So there's something really important about knowing who you're talking to, deciding and seeing what is the relationship I'm building with this investor, what is the feeling that I got about how they see my company, how they challenged me, et cetera. So there's something quite important about understanding even before you get to allocation, who the universe is and who they could be. And paying attention to the daily book updates, that's important. But also in the allocation meeting, maybe having a say, you know, you might not be the decision maker, but you have a say, you've been there, you've met these people, you can see the interest that this investor had or the intelligent question or the way they modeled your business. And it's challenging. It's interesting. It's somebody that, you know, you think would add value. So I would say be really intentional and participate because again, it's a technical sort of work stream. So the temptation is, oh, well, that doesn't necessarily concern me too much because it's a mechanic. Somebody will do the allocation process as the banks do. So just be intentional and participate. There's one other question, which is about the start and the stop, go, no go. And that you can prepare perfectly, but then there's so much uncertainty about timing of an IPO. And I'm sure there's many CEOs who really have wanted to list their company this year in 2023 if the market was receptive enough, but it might just not be happening because the market is still quite difficult. And then if you're communicating internally about the potential IPO and it's not happening, that could, of course, create some frustration. So how should companies really manage those internal expectations about the IPO? That's probably the most frustrating part of an IPO. It's a market-driven exercise and you don't control that. There's a window. Yes, you know that you have a sequence of steps that you follow that get you there. But at every step, at every junction point, there's a go-no-go. That gives the vendor the option to decide whether this is the right time or not the right time, or the banks to explain you know, what's going on and whether it should go. I guess a couple of things on how firms address it. You know, the truth is your advisors are there to get you over the line. That's their role. They're, they're going to always tell you just get ready, et cetera. Companies that have stop and starts 
ultimately they do come back. So just know if that's happening to you right now and you're trying to get out. And I have to say pretty much all the IPO clients that we are working with this year are in a stop start scenario right now. You know, it does ultimately come back. So there are windows that come back. And then just also be ready that it can always be in a trade sale as well. Like there's always the possibility that it can happen. We talked about earlier about the different exits. And yeah, sometimes you're looking at IPO, but there's a dual track process. I think how to keep it tight, how to manage the stop start is number one, to keep the team really tight. The circle that you work with has to be really clear on what the exercise is, really clear on the calendar. And from your project head to your CFO, everyone who's involved has to really understand this is just the nature of the exercise. If you keep the deal tight and you're quite transparent, then you can manage that. The other thing is I've seen a lot of sometimes excitement and patience. You sort of have to keep it cool. It will probably happen. You don't control when. The key is that you manage the team and the process as tightly as possible so that whenever that button is pushed, you're ready. So everything that you can do to compress the timetable and be ready, you want to do. And the other thing is, think about it. If you miss a window, yeah, I mean, I guess you could think about it as a missed opportunity, but it's also, in a way, helping the company develop more track record and potentially come back with an even better story. And so the idea is to think forward and um, manage that. And I have to say, some companies are really good at managing this stop and start. I'm thinking, for example, of Française des Jeux. They knew a long time before they had to go IPO that they would be privatized at some point. And they already started educating their COMEX and all the different people in the comms teams, again, with very confidential sort of guardrails around the discussions. But this is what an IPO looks like. These are the things you can prepare, et cetera. So I think just being quite open about what you can and can't control and communicating internally with your project team is really important could almost say it's an advantage if you are ready and you're ready to launch and you run the company like that for six months. It's actually maybe not so bad because you get to find the gaps and, and actually be 100% ready when you go live, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess the issue is if it's longer than that and then you have to refile and then there's more additional audits that you need. You know, it's true. So if you can stay within the window, which is six months, then yeah, you're absolutely right. You're even more ready. And now my favorite topic, what happens after the IPO? Because we talked a lot about the IPO. It's a significant milestone, no doubt about that. But uh, I think it's very important to remember that it's only the beginning of the new life as a listed company. What are some of the important points you think the CEOs and CFOs should keep in mind uh, about being a listed company post the IPO? So what they're always told is, oh, you have to really master communication. There is a part of your job that becomes effectively communicator. And I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Sarah Fryer when she did the IPO of Nextdoor. And if the share is not delivering, even though the company's delivering, she has to go on CNBC every quarter and explain what's happening. Being really clear, articulate, continuing with this is the vision and the strategy that we're developing, et cetera, is that's a real skill. And I think for the CEO, that's the visible sort of face of the company when results get published and the market may or may not be following what your trajectory in terms of performance is still being able to be very clear and intentional about the vision. So I think, you know, communication for sure. And I guess your world is never going to go back to what it was. It's a different world. It's changed. Sometimes it can be a fundamental transformation on the CEO. I'm thinking of certain CEOs that have come that were engineers maybe, and then they became CEO and all of a sudden they're public. 
or civil servants that have been appointed to become CEO of big companies who now have to work in a very different way and interact with their stakeholders in a very different way. So those are the things, I guess, that you would typically hear from people, you know, manage your stakeholders, communicate, etc. I think one of the things that I've observed from going along with and being sort of accompanying people through the process is that it can be quite lonely, actually, post-IPO for a CEO. You've been in a working group. There's been a lot of excitement around the milestone. You've listed. It's been fantastic. Now you're publicly listed. I've noticed that there's sometimes a sort of loneliness that happens after that. So I would just say go into IPO really well accompanied with a network of people that can support you post-IPO, friends, trusted advisors, you know, stay in touch. Just because you're listed doesn't mean that you don't have access to that support. That's quite important. And the other thing I guess that people don't really tell you, but you read a lot about is, you know, the market wants performance and we're looking at the next quarter or the next half year. All of a sudden, it's your job as CEO to remind people of the vision. And that's why I mentioned Sarah Fryer, because she's, you know, of course, the stock price has done things. It's not always immediate, but having the vision and just reminding the market of what the long-term ambition is and how you're building that step-by-step is really important. I think we're very focused on quarterlies and delivery of KPIs, but you can't run a business with just KPIs. I tend to ask uh, CEOs how often they look at their stock price once they're listed. And uh, some of the answers we got began with every half hour, but uh, (laughs) over time, I managed to detach from it. What do you think about that? I think it's important. I see so many times when the stock uh, loses one and a half, two percent in a day, the IRO get called by the CEO, like what's going on, et cetera. Of course, it's important to understand the dynamic because there's always an explanation. But equally, I think it's the CEO's role to detach from the day-to-day performance to deliver the growth and the performance that they have the vision for, which they explained at IPO. To finish off, uh, is there any fun facts from some of the IPOs you've accompanied through your career that you can mention to the audience? I guess going on an IPO with a company, however easy or hard the market is at the time, is always fun. There's an element of it that is really exciting and really fun. And I think some of the IPOs that certainly I've been on and where I've traveled with uh, the team, et cetera, they bind you for life. I'm thinking of, for example, NL Green Power when that IPO'd in 2010 and it was a massive sort of European IPO. You know, then Francesco Storace became the, the CEO of NL, now just left. But, you know, these are bonds that you have for life. I'm thinking of an IPO for Natixis, for example, where the pricing happened, I think it was the night before the Lehman Brothers crisis. So we just managed to price and allocate. And then the market closed for a long, long time in 2008. You know, so some are very difficult, et cetera. But there are real rewarding, I guess, things to watch. Like you watch uh, teams gel. I'm thinking of the Nexi team that felt so super connected after their IPO. Or um, I'm also thinking it's a smaller IPO in Italy, but Piovan Group. That whole process for them was such a milestone. It was such a celebration and such a bond around it. So I think that's really important to think about watching the team's bond. And I guess the other thing is there's always something good about the day. So the silver lining sort of, you know, you're going to do this very hard process, especially the roadshow, going to see investors is really relentless. You're talking all day about your story, but there's always something that you can hang on to, which is an interesting point of the day, some joy that you might have found if you're traveling, maybe a place you've been, a restaurant or something at the end of the day. So it's actually a really fun process. I know it's sometimes brutal, But I think everyone who's survived it and done it is usually bonded for life and gets together and really still celebrates. 
So it seems like companies should definitely go back on physical roadshows because that leaves also more of a mark on your uh, memories, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, right now, most of the roadshows we're seeing are hybrid. We're not quite yet back and we may never be back in the 100% physical roadshow, but it's it's an amazing time if you are on the road with people. It's like that little band of brothers and it's pretty special. You never forget the intensity. Thank you very much, Lance. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from the host today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com.